So, Shane, I'm going to enlist you to help solve a mystery. Are you ready? Uh, Oh, yeah. I'm always up for a mystery. Shane Harris reports on national security over The Washington Post. And the mystery I was hoping he could solve, it revolved around this contradictory reporting I read last week. First, there was an article in The New York Times. It had a simple headline. U.S. intelligence is helping Ukraine to kill Russian generals. Seems really straightforward, right? Right. Mm -hmm. A day later, in the Military Times, Pentagon denies U.S. intelligence is targeting Russian generals in Ukraine. And then my favorite (laughs) of these headlines is from New York Magazine. It says, U.S. admits and denies helping Ukraine kill Russian generals. (laughs) So I'm confused. Like, who's right here. So there, there, there are three words that are doing a lot of work in these headlines. One is intelligence, the other is targeting, <laughs> and the other is helping or help. I feel like there's a very complicated, very lawyered chain that this information is going through. I mean, what gave you that impression? Shane says, this linguistic dance is all about plausible deniability. Did these generals die? Yes. Were they inside command and control facilities that were visible to U.S. intelligence? Also, yes. Did the U.S. tell Ukraine about these command and control facilities? Definitely. But the Biden administration does not want anyone thinking the war in Ukraine is being led by them. The United States is not helping Ukraine to target, that's a very important word, target, Russian facilities or people or equipment. So the difference is they're not saying, like, this guy is here, send a bomb. That's right. They're not saying, you know, General Gerasimov is sitting in a uh, uh, command and control trailer at the following coordinates, go drop a bomb on him. Why is that difference important? Why it's important from the perspective of the United States government is that it's keeping them from becoming directly a party or a partner in this conflict with Russia. But the longer this war goes on and the more that U.S. support of military equipment and intelligence becomes the thing that is giving the Ukrainians the decisive advantage over Russia, I think that that distinction starts to practically make less and less of a difference. And I think that the Kremlin is going to view it that way as well. Yeah, I was reading Tom Friedman's column from a couple days back, and and he actually said this intelligence sharing was a sign that the war was getting more dangerous for America. Do you agree with him? Yeah, I think he has a point there. Today on the show, inside the pipeline of intelligence that is fueling Ukraine's military victories, I'm Mary Harris. You're listening to What Next? Stick around. if you can characterize what the U.S.'s approach to intelligence sharing looked like before the Ukraine war? Like, how happy has the U.S. been to open up its treasure trove of intel to outsiders? Well, it it depends on conflict by conflict. You know, during the Iraq war, particularly during the surge in 2008, when the United States was fighting alongside the Iraqi military, 
to combat militants and, and you know, kind of nascent terrorist groups, I mean, effectively, there was no distinction. I mean, the United States intelligence community basically had controlled the telecommunication system of Iraq and used that to try and geolocate bad guys and go out with the Iraqis and capture or kill them. So in that case, the U.S. really was directing things. Oh, yeah. But the United States, remember, was in an active combat engagement. They were fighting a war. The United States was using its intelligence capabilities on the battlefield and sharing that with, you know, with the Iraqis with whom they fight. There have been instances where the United States has provided very, very specific information about the location of suspected terrorists to governments in Africa to use to combat militant groups there. So what you're seeing in Ukraine is, you know, it's for defensive purposes from the U.S.'s position, but it's a pretty full-on opening of the pipes, as General Milley, the chairman of the Joint Chiefs of Staff, put it recently. We have opened up the pipes, which I'm not going to go into detail here at an open hearing, uh, but there's a significant amount of intelligence flowing to Ukraine uh, from the United States. All of that- it's not handing over a capability. You know, we're not giving, you know, the Ukrainians like the keys to our satellites and saying, here, point them wherever you want them. But it is pretty robust. So, for instance, nothing in my reporting suggests that the United States is providing Ukraine with intelligence about targets in Russia. You know, they're not saying, here are things you might want to hit beyond the borders of your own country to wage a wider war against Russia. In fact, there was a time, you know, maybe three or four weeks ago, when the United States was not really fully providing intelligence about what was going on in the east of Ukraine or in the south. Like the Donbass region. Yes, that's right. Because after Russia invaded in 2014 and then occupied parts of the Donbass uh, and these eastern so-called breakaway republics and, of course, had put its own troops in Crimea, there were restrictions that the U.S. couldn't share intelligence with Ukraine that might lead to the Ukrainians attacking Russian targets in those areas. Because that's functionally Russian territory. Exactly, exactly. And the United States did not want to be seen as encouraging these offensive operations against Russians in Ukraine. That has changed, by the way. That guidance was altered, and now, you know, the pipe is open for all regions and all parts of Ukraine. Part of what made the leaks last week so stunning the one about how Ukraine was working with the U.S. to target Russian generals. It was that it was quickly followed by another leak. And this one was about a Russian warship the U.S. apparently helped Ukraine sink. Americans identified and located the vessel when asked by Ukrainian officials. Yes. So the Moskva uh, was the crown jewel, the the flagship of the Black Sea Fleet for the Russians. Most Americans will know this as the famous Russian warship that an encampment of brave Ukrainian soldiers on Snake Island said, Russian warship, go f*** yourself, when the ship tried to get them to surrender (laughs) their position. So the Moskva is the go f yourself ship. It was patrolling, you know, off the coasts of Ukraine, we should say, by the way, this is a, it's a guided missile ship. It has the ability to fire missiles onto targets from the sea, to, to targets on the land from the sea. It also has a really formidable capability, at least it's supposed to, to defend itself from missiles that are fired at it or from any kind of threat that would come out at a plane, another ship, that kind of thing. Huh. So, you know, this is a really big, badass ship in the Russian Navy, and it's quite famous. And, of course, it had already played this kind of outsized role in the, in the conflict in Ukraine. So fast forward a little bit. The Ukrainians apparently spot a ship off their shore, 
And the questions that they have are, you know, is this the Moskva? What is its intentions? What is it doing? They then go to the United States, which is able to provide intelligence that is helpful. The way you described it, it just sounds like this complicated game of mother may I? Like, I have a ship. What kind of ship is it? (laughs) You know? I think a little bit, yeah. So what happened when they went to the U.S.? So they go to the U.S., they ask for assistance in, you know, essentially, as we understand it, kind of identifying the ship and making sure it's the Moskva. And when they become, when Ukrainians become confident that it is, they decide to fire missiles at it. And what's important to remember here is that these anti-ship missiles the Ukrainians have, they're called the Neptune missile, they don't have that many of them. And they're powerful, but they're not the most powerful missile out there, but they're really valuable. And the Ukrainians have to be careful about how they use these. They can't waste them. So once they determine that this ship is like the mothership. Literally named after Moscow. Yeah, exactly. It's the flagship. And we don't know all the information they had about it, but there's actually some open source reporting to suggest that the Moskva had not actually deployed its radar, which if the Ukrainians knew that, They understood that the ship had its guard down, and this would be a very opportune moment to strike. Hmm. Um, But they fire these two missiles, these two Neptune missiles at the Moskva. And the Ukrainians must be a hell of a shot (laughs) because these two (laughs) missiles kind of cause a chain reaction that cripples the ship. And then it sinks as it's being towed back to port. I mean, you called it one of the most dramatic battlefield successes of this war. Absolutely. Absolutely. I mean, this was, you know, one of the most significant naval victories that we've seen in decades by any country. But initially it was reported as just a fire, right? Yes, exactly. And there was some, you know, the Russians tried to claim that there was a fire on the ship. And to be clear, a fire aboard a ship is a really bad thing that could lead it to sink. But the Russians never acknowledged that the fire or the the damage was caused by Ukrainian missiles, and certainly not that it was caused by Ukrainian missiles that had some level of assistance from U.S. intelligence. So Moscow wants to keep this very quiet because it's a huge embarrassment. It's not only a very important ship that, by the way, was presumed to be integral to Russia's plans to start hitting coastal cities and prepare possibly for an amphibious assault in the south of Ukraine. But this is, you know, the most sophisticated warship. This is a ship that's supposed to be able to defend itself against missiles like the Neptune, which are relatively slow moving. The the Moskva's radar should be able to see them. Apparently it did not. It sounds like you have questions about how much information the U.S. gave Ukraine, like Did they tell Ukraine their shields are down? Yeah, I think that's a legitimate question to ask because there were photographs that were taken of the Moskva that have circulated in the open source after it was hit that do show their radars in the basically the off position, if you want to think of it that way. Now, that could be because of Russian incompetence. I mean, the Russians have been remarkably incompetent with their military operation so far. But one question I think that's that's reasonable to ask is could the Ukrainians see that? Did the United States tell them that? Did the U.S. confirm that if the Ukrainians asked? And all of that, as we understand it, would be within the bounds of this intelligence-sharing relationship that the U.S. has with Ukraine. What would be out of bounds would be for the U.S. to say, hey, Ukrainian Navy, the Moskva is here at these coordinates. Go get it. And from our reporting, that's not what happened. In fact, we understand that U.S. officials were actually surprised, they say, (laughs) that the Ukrainians fired these missiles at it. Now, I don't take that to mean that they were surprised 
that armed with good information, the Ukrainians decided to attack. I think it's more that they were maybe surprised to see that they actually kind of went for the gold here with, with hitting the Moskva. But it was an important ship, and I think the Ukrainians determined that it was worth spending their precious missiles on. Russia has not confirmed any casualties, but there are reports of social media posts by relatives announcing the death of loved ones on board, posts that were later deleted. Is it clear to this day what happened to the crew of the Moskva? Like, there were more than 500 people on board, right? Yeah, it's still not entirely clear how many people died on the ship, both from the initial impact of the explosions, any kind of subsequent fire, maybe who were below decks or who died trying to save the ship. It did, you know, get towed or the Russians tried to tow it back to port and eventually sank. And this points to something else important, too, which is that Putin and Russia still do not acknowledge that it was sunk by Ukrainian missiles. That figures into the sensitivities around this, I think, as well. I think one reason that the Biden administration doesn't want the story of any kind of U.S. assistance to Ukraine aiding in the sinking of the Moskva to come out is because Putin still does not acknowledge that Ukraine did this, even though the Russians will acknowledge that there are soldiers of theirs dying on the battlefield and that even officers are being killed. The Moskva still seems to be kind of in this very sensitive category for Putin. And I think that the United States is eager not to you know, rub his nose in it right now. Nevertheless, some people are rubbing Putin's nose in this naval loss. So why? That's coming up after the break. When news broke last week that the U.S. helped the Ukrainian military sink the pride of Russia's navy, it was a curious thing, because the Biden administration was not controlling this story. The admission didn't seem to be coming out for strategic reasons. It was just an oopsie. When did U.S. officials actually start copying to the fact that they were sharing intel with Ukraine about the Moskva? Well, they didn't really cop to it until reporters started reporting on it. We've become accustomed to the Biden administration and the intelligence community doling out all kinds of classified information about what Russia has been up to in this war. And they've actually been very proud of it. And they kind of trumpet this as this strategy of being very, you know, active in the publishing of classified information, which is very unusual, as a way of trying to, you know, if not deter Russia from invading Ukraine, they were trying to take away Russia's options for, you know, the justification for starting a war or kind of expose and out their planning. Now, though, what you're seeing is when it comes to intelligence about how the U.S. is assisting Ukraine, that is not a story that the administration wants to tell. They wanted to tell a story about Russia and what Russia was up to. They don't want to tell a story about what they're doing to help Ukraine with intelligence, which is also kind of surprising because, of course, the U.S. puts out whole lists of the physical material, the, you know, the anti-tank weapons, the artillery, the helmets, the, the flak jackets, all this stuff that we are sending to Ukraine. That's all very public. And I think what this tells you is that this sharing of intelligence is that the U.S. understands very, very well how effective this intelligence is at helping Ukrainians, the edge that it gives the Ukrainians, the decisive edge it may give the Ukrainians in some cases. And if that story is fully known, what it tells you is that regardless of what kind of legalisms or distinctions the administration wants to draw, the fact is, is that Ukraine is beating the Russians 
because the United States is helping them and because the United States is pointing out where valuable targets are. Even if they're not targeting, the United States intelligence community is helping Ukraine understand what to attack. When you call your sources, because you did report this out and confirm that U.S. intelligence contributed to the sinking of the Moskva, when you call your sources and say, like, come on, give me the story here, are they, like, hanging up the phone on you? Like, I don't want to talk about this. (laughs) Or is there a division in the administration where some people are like, you know, it's a good idea to get this out there. And some people are like, no, I don't think so. Yeah, I mean, I, I, look, I, I, without talking too directly about sources, I think that we shouldn't assume, you know, that everyone has the same view as the White House about whether it's a good thing or a bad thing to get this information out. There are lots of people who are privy to this information. It's not necessarily a very closely held secret. Uh, I think that the administration was distressed about this, and you did hear the Pentagon spokesman John Kirby come out and say, and even there's been reporting that President Biden said this, that this doesn't help our efforts to have this information out there. I, I, I want to be careful not to get into the specifics of the intel sharing. I think we can all understand why um, it's, not, it's not good to have an open discussion about intelligence sharing. Yeah, I mean, when Tom Friedman wrote about this, the way he put it was, the leaks were not part of any thought-out strategy, and President Biden was livid about them, literally calling the director of national intelligence and the CIA and saying in his strongest and most colorful language that this kind of loose talk is reckless. I'm wondering, though, if you can tell me, the people who do want this information out there, what is their argument? Because there is... You know, the administration is articulating it clearly. They don't necessarily want to poke the bear here. So for the people who do, why? Well, I'm not sure that they want to poke the bear either. I just think that there are some people who perhaps think it was obvious that the U.S. was providing this assistance, and they they think that it's obvious to Vladimir Putin as well. There may be people who don't feel it's their job to be on the same page with the U.S. administration's strategy on this. I think in some cases, the thought never even occurred to them. There are some people who just kind mm-hmm. of talk about this stuff is to say, well, yeah, of course the U.S. was helping or is helping in these cases. But I do think that the, the sensitivity around this issue ultimately comes back to the fact that the administration is doing everything it can not to be seen as sort of being hand-in-hand with Ukraine fighting the Russians. The United States doesn't want to give Russia any impression that we are at war with you too. And I have to say, as a reporter having covered this, I've always found that to be, I don't want to say misguided, but it's perplexing because at the end of the day, there is one person who is going to decide whether or not the United States is in direct conflict with Russia. And it's not a lawyer sitting in the White House. It's It's Vladimir Vladimir Putin. Putin. (laughs) Yeah, he's going to decide what is escalatory or what is targeting. Putin is going to decide whether he thinks Washington is helping Ukraine win this war and whether he thinks that he's at war with the United States. It's funny. I look at this intel sharing and the leaks around it, and I think that the approach being taken right now by the U.S. in Ukraine is kind of a high-risk, high-reward strategy for the U.S. Like, it could provoke Moscow to know how deeply involved the U.S. is in, in targeting Russia. Or it could restrain Moscow. Like, we already saw this week, Putin gave a speech in Red Square, and many people thought it would be an opportunity for him to escalate the war, which he didn't do. And 
to me, I have no idea whether the intelligence here and the leaks around it played any role, but they did happen around the same time. Yeah, you know, I think that there has is that if we go back to the administration's strategy when it was knowingly and 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 kind of gleefully in some cases releasing intelligence about what it knew about what Vladimir Putin was up to and what his military was doing. They were absolutely, I think, trying to do that, again, not to deter him from invading, but to make him think twice about the course that he was setting out on and to undermine his confidence in his military's ability to perform. One of the things that U.S. intelligence and and Western intelligence agencies were saying before the war began was Putin's military advisors were not being honest with him about how costly this was going to be and about how hard it was going to be, how many losses he would incur in invading Ukraine. So, yes, I mean, a lot of this intelligence that leaks out, even the stuff that the administration doesn't want known, I think we can assume that there's at least a chance that Putin sees this and thinks like, God, I mean, you know, I'm kind of being outgunned here. Uh, You know, these guys are really good, right? I mean, at this point, I was talking to somebody, you know, in a senior level the other day who said, you know, we don't really assume at this point that Putin doesn't understand that he's losing. I think at this point he knows it's not going well. Um, And, you know, this may be a question that we can only answer with the benefit of hindsight and years forward in history, but I think there's at least a you know, a a decent argument to be made that the more that Putin understands how much the United States is helping and how much this is playing a decisive advantage, that this is a war that is going to be really, really hard for him to keep fighting. And I think that is a message that the United States and its allies want to get across to Putin is that the longer you keep going with this, the worse it is going to be for you. And you are not going to topple the country. You are not going to take Kyiv. You're not going to get rid of President Zelensky. So maybe, you know, Putin, you need to rethink this. Do you think anyone in D.C. is looking at the way this intelligence sharing is playing out and how it differs from previous conflicts and thinking of it as a kind of model of how the U.S., should get involved in other countries? Or is it too soon for that kind of thinking? No, I think a lot of people are are, are asking that very question of, <clears throat> is this a model? I mean, certainly the intelligence that was shared, that was disclosed publicly before the war, it was unprecedented in my career as a journalist doing this for 20 plus years to see an administration push out that much classified information. But I think a lot of people looked at that and said, could this be a playbook for future conflicts where we're trying to deter a course of action by a country or we're trying to you know, take away its ability to shape a narrative or to falsely blame another country for starting a war when actually it was the aggressor? And on the question of like sharing intelligence with, with militaries though on the battlefield, I have to believe that this is also a model that we would look at in future conflicts because it seems to be working out really well. I mean, the, the, the provision of military equipment plus intelligence to Ukraine is giving it the edge to you know, defeat Russia. I mean, that's not to take away, by the way, from the very good training and the discipline and the creativity that the Ukrainian military has shown. And that really is down to its own ingenuity and its own discipline and its own will to fight. And you can't just import that into them. But they are the beneficiaries of some really powerful and sophisticated intel. Uh, And I think that this is something that, you know, the U.S. has seen in other contexts as well uh, and is probably something that they would replicate. Yeah. I mean, it's notable to me that 
you know, it really relies on Ukraine having its own military. Like you couldn't do something like this back in the beginning of the Syrian conflict, for instance, because that was just a different kind of situation. And so it relies on certain things being in place. Yeah, I think that's a great point, is that you you have to have a recipient of this information and of these weapons that knows what to do with it. What I've been hearing from my sources in Ukraine since the beginning of the conflict is, you know, essentially, we don't need you to tell us what to shoot at. We just need you to tell us where things are. We need your eyes. You know, we need your ears. And we can take it from there. And we can take it from there, right. And that is, I think, precisely how it's working and the way the United States wants to keep it working for now. Shane, thank you so much for coming on the show and explaining all this to me. Happy to do it. Thanks for having me, Mary. Good to talk to you. Shane Harris covers intelligence and national security. And no, we are not related. But right after we got off the line, Shane became part of the Washington Post's Pulitzer Prize winning team. They nabbed that honor for their coverage of January 6th. Congratulations, Shane. All right, that's the show. What Next is produced by Elena Schwartz, Carmel Del Shad, and Mary Wilson. We're getting a little help these days from Sam Kim and Anna Rubinova. We are led by Alicia Montgomery and Joanne Levine. And I'm Mary Harris. Go find me on Twitter. Say hello. I'm at Mary's desk. In the meantime, I'll catch you back here tomorrow. <laughs> 